Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are going to talk live with Peter Hyatt about the Madeline McCann case. Peter is a statement analyst and instructor who teaches statement analysis and analytical interviewing to law enforcement in corporate America. He has authored the investigator training manual for DHHS, State of Maine, as well as the book, written the book, Wise as a Serpent, Gentle as a Dove. He has been interviewed extensively on radio and television, including the nationally televised program Crime Watch Daily and taken too soon the Caitlin Markham story documentary. He has analyzed statements made in high-profile crimes and missing persons cases, such as John JonBenet Ramsey, Haley Dunn, Darlie Rotier, and Santa Claus on his blog statement analysis. His website is Hyatt, and that's H-Y-A-T-T, analysis.com, Hyatt Analysis, one word, dot com. Peter joins us today to discuss the Madeline McCann case. The then four-year-old disappeared from a resort in Portugal on May 3, 2007, while on vacation with her family and a group of other families and their children. Her case has been wisely publicized around the world. From the beginning, Madeline's disappearance has been the source of controversy, much of it surrounding her parents, Kate and Jerry McCann, and their actions subsequent to the disappearance of their daughter. After several inquiries, a campaign by the parents, and numerous theories, what happened to Madeline remains a mystery. If you have a question for Peter or a comment about the case, please call us at 646 646- Four seven eight zero nine eight two. That's six four six four seven eight zero nine eight two. And the show's chat room is also open, and uh, we welcome your comments and conversation. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dalai. Uh, Excuse me for laughing forward. a little bit. I was just listening to your introduction where you mentioned Santa Claus on the blog. You said Peter, I, I did. I thought that was quite interesting. 
<laughs> well, you know, for the benefit of everyone who's listening and may want to call in or ask questions and everything, um, you know, we want you to have we want to have a very informative discussion with Peter about this case. And, and like Denny said, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. And we know, you know, everybody has kind of taken their sides and, and come up with their theories, but we want to look at this from the standpoint of statement analysis and, and Peter Hyatt is, is number one in our book, but we're going to allow one question or comment per person, and, and we're going to do everything we can to get everyone in on this show. So if you keep your questions and comments brief, and we can take the next call or the next question, um, you know, even though we have 90 minutes, we're expecting a large audience, and, and we want everybody to take turns and enjoy the show. That is right. Well, at least I'm not, at least I'm not set up to be uh, the guy who analyzed Nick, <laughs> it reminded me of the movie. Um, no, no one wants to prosecute Santa Claus. What it was, yeah. and, and I think it actually is relevant here because um, a number of, of people, especially in the United Kingdom, have had very strong reactions to the disappearance of this little child. And, um, and I, I hope to bring some justification to those emotions on today's program. But there was and there has been a a rash of fake hate reports throughout the country, especially in the past month since the election. And so when someone who plays Santa Claus had made a, um, a statement about a dying boy in his arms, it's very difficult to blame people for doubting it. There's so much of this, especially if there's a link to GoFundMe, which there wasn't in this case, but the, um, the people who appreciated the analysis, whether they agreed with it or not, on Madeleine McCann were able to quickly look over at another case, and um, the analysis there on the man that plays Santa Claus is probably a little more in-depth than people realize in terms of discerning a veracity or truthfulness in this statement. So they're able to see that, okay, I, I agree with this guy Hyatt over in the United States about his opinion on the McCann case. He's telling us that they're deceptive, and he's telling us why he shows them to be deceptive. But the same principles he's using in the McCann case, we can apply to some known liars like O.J. Simpson, um, Casey Anthony, and we can see the reverse of these things in this fellow Santa Claus. And we did find out later on that there was some confirmation to his story, but it was doubted immediately, and... Um, in some media, they reported it almost in a ridiculing type of manner, which is fitting for our, our generation and day with journalism. But it is interesting that they can tie the principles in that's used in one, that are used in another, that are used in another, and so on, to see why this is. So Santa Claus was justified, but had he lied, had he made up the story, I would have said the same. <laughs> um Peter, let me ask you a question before we get started. The uh, If we get a question, I have one now, in fact, and if we get any more questions uh, that are about uh, some previous uh, analysis you've done but don't apply to this case, is there? Uh, we don't really want to ask them because we want to limit this to the McCain case. But is there an email or a phone number or somewhere where people can get a hold of you 
to ask you questions about previous uh, analysis that you've done? I think the best way is to go to the actual analysis at the statement analysis blog and post the question there because it's um, even with a team of analysts and we do a, a limited number of pro bono work, it's virtually impossible to answer everyone's questions and especially can you analyze this? Can you analyze that? It's, um, it just can't be done. So if there's a question posted on the blog in response to a specific analysis, then yeah, that can be answered better. I think in, in, um, in a more timely way. Okay. Excellent. So anyone who has a question for Peter that does not relate to the McCain case, if you will go on the blog and uh, you can post your question there and, uh, and he will get back to you or respond to your question. So again, the phone number, if you want to call in with a question, 646-478-0982, 646-478-0982. And we have quite a few people in the chat room. If anyone has a question or comment in the chat room, please post it. And uh, if it's a question, we'll relay it to Peter and he can answer it. Um, or if it's a comment that uh, we think is appropriate for his attention, we'll also mention that to him. Um, Delilah, do you want to start out with the first question that we got from uh, from an emailer? Sure, I, I certainly will. But you know, maybe before we get started with questions, if would it be okay if Peter just kind of gives a a very brief synopsis of the case for those listeners out there that may not be familiar with it. Certainly, I had been asked to um, interview a man named Richard Hall from the United Kingdom on the, the case. And I had done some analysis years ago on it, and I concluded that the parents were deceptive. But he was a, or he is a, an interviewer of a, a much different stripe. He, um, he came to the interview, he flew over from the United Kingdom to Maine, and he came in with very strong opinions. And unlike, I think, any journalist I've ever dealt with, he reframed himself making any assertions. He literally interviewed as if he was an investigative reporter seeking information. He, he, no matter how strong his opinions were, they were not part of the interview. And so he wanted to know what does the language of the McCanns in this interview reveal? And he stuck to it, and I stuck to it, and I respected him for it. What had happened was a, a little girl had can't even say she'd been reported kidnapped because that was not what the McCann said. She'd been reported missing uh, with the implication, with things like she's been taken, that she was kidnapped. And the parents went on what I would call a media blitz, where they were, they said they were having dinner and they were about 50 meters away on vacation in Portugal. And when they came to check on the kids, as they normally routinely do, Madeline was missing. And there was wind blowing through the curtains. So they, they knew right there, according to their words, they knew that she had been taken. So uh, in effect, even though it's my language, they reported that she had been abducted. And this is their assertion. And what I did was simply analyze the words, comparing it against the language of parents and abductions. 
abductions, stranger abductions are rather rare in the United States as they are in the Western world. But they do happen. A lot of them are custodial. And the main priority of that parent is getting that child back. A lesser priority is then for justice. But the, the driving priority in the language of the parents of a child that's been kidnapped is going to be, let me communicate with the kidnapper so I can get my child back. And basically it's all they can think about. Now, some of you may remember a few years ago, a baby was reported kidnapped here in Maine, in Waterville, Maine, in which the uh, father, Justin DiPietro, the baby, baby Ayla, looking at the anniversary now of this case, where the father had reported her kidnapped, that someone entered his home at night, found the right window to get in, was able to get in and out without waking the adults or any of the children, take her out without leaving any trace DNA, and the kidnapper now has her. So police and media came to his door, put a microphone in front of him so that he could say to the kidnapper, let's talk, let's get my baby back. And Justin issued a statement saying that he was incapable, emotionally incapable, of speaking right now. What I make this akin to is this. I ask people to consider the behavioral analysis of a missing child. When a child goes missing, the parent will call out to the child naturally. And if you can picture yourself shopping for food, you're holding your little girl's hand as you're moving through the store, and for a moment you take away your hand to get an item, you lose attention, and she's gone. The very first thing you do is call out her name. You call to her. It's, it's the most natural, instinctive reflex. And from there, there is an explosion of hormonal response that says, I am going to save my child. Stop the store. Don't let anyone out. Frantically search, that sort of thing. That's the norm. That's the expected. So when a parent reports, my child has been taken or my child is missing, we look at their first thing they say and the first thing they do. I liken it to being at the supermarket or the grocery store or the food store. The child goes missing and the parent says, hmm, my child is missing. Let me finish shopping first and then I'll get to her. And as I finish shopping, let me check out. Let me pay for the groceries. In fact, let me load the car. Well, let me load the car and drive the groceries home, unpack them have something to eat, maybe take a nap, and then maybe I'll get to calling out to my child and getting her back. And as this sounds, in the words of Kate McCann, ludicrous, because it is. That's exactly what they did regarding their child. That's what John and Patsy Ramsey did regarding their, quote-unquote, missing or kidnapped child. That's what Justin DiPietro did. This is Behavioral Analysis 101. It's very simple. The child goes missing parent calls out for it. If the parent refuses to call out for the child, it is fair to say the parent doesn't want the child found. And That's really that, interesting. And it, you know that that you can relate the same sort of statements within the framework of three separate cases and all of them kind of controversial as well. Um we've got some questions Peter, are you ready to go with that? 
Sure. Okay. Well, the first question comes from the chat room from Claire. Um, based on the statements, do you believe that Madeline McCann fell after being sedated while her parents were at dinner, or do you think that her parents were in the apartment when it happened? I don't know the answer to that um, because I'm limiting myself to what the statements reveal to us. So, for example, when O.J. Simpson went to the jury, I predicted that America had long long since moved on with race relations and that there was no possible way they would find him innocent. And I was wrong. And then when I watched the Casey Anthony trial, I said, this is, this is but a joke. They'll come back in short order with a guilty verdict. And that didn't happen. Um, so my predictions and that sort of thing and my, my viewpoints aren't always that strong. But when it comes to the language, I'm convinced. And in this case, I'm convinced that she fell. I'm also convinced by the language that she was not only sedated, but this has been a practice that they had been using as an anesthesiologist um, for some time at that point, at least on that vacation as well. What I can't tell from the language, and Richard had the same question, was about the timing, the exact timing. Were they there? Were they not there? So I'm not sure, but I am sure that she did fall and that she likely fell under sedation. You know, some people question whether or not a fall could um, cause a child to die. Well, if a child does already have depressed respiratory because of the sedation, that's one issue. And the second issue is um, regarding some of the work that I um, was privileged to be associated with here in Maine during my years in child protective was Dr. Larry Ritchie, a forensic uh, pediatric expert in child abuse. Uh, I had known about him before I moved to Maine and I attended the seminars, but mostly my experience with him was sending him pictures and x-rays and verbal descriptions of what happened being compared to the injury. And he is brilliant. And a child falling and hitting her head, for example, um, alone could, could bring death. But a child falling, hitting her head while under sedation, having depressed respiratory to begin with, even more so. If something happened to her beyond that, it's not in the language. Like people have asked, you know, was she sold into a child sex ring? Child sex rings do exist. Um, I confronted one myself that I was unprepared for. It was just shocking. They do exist. However, what the parents revealed to us is Madeline died in the apartment and the fall that was associated with it. She this is why um, no matter how someone views them as parents, and I know there's a lot of emotion behind this, um, I don't have any emotional connection with the case or with them. I, I didn't sit in front of a television and watch them lie to me, uh, which is aggravating. Some of the videos, yes, they, they, you can see it's provocative because um, they have a contempt for their audience. They, they say to the audience, I'm lying, I'm smarter than you, you're an idiot. You, you fall in line and, and follow my, my thinking here. And then it becomes even more aggravating to have a journalist go along with it. And the journalist may be going along for it because that is a, um, I'll get to this later, but that is a party line they need to follow. Or the journalist is self-serving saying, I want to keep this interview going and I want the McCann to come back to me again because it's good for my ratings. 
not truthful about it. Richard went into the interview just looking for truth, very different than, than what we experience today. So I believe the child uh, died and the mother's disposition, we call this the linguistic disposition, towards her child after that point is one of safety. In other words, I'm no longer concerned about Madeline, not because I'm a sociopath, but because Madeline is beyond concern. I don't think this was an intended death. It was a death by gross negligence. And you can, you can put in the element of child abuse by sedation. I talked about in a, la- in a live discussion we had um, a doctor I had, a pediatrician I had interviewed several times who was describing um, a codeine-like substance or codeine, I don't know what sure it was, in a cough syrup that he deliberately gave to abusive parents to give their children at night to put their children to sleep. Now, he was finally charged with this stuff. He had to surrender his license, and it was, a, it was a big disaster. But he said to me, yes, Peter, I do it on purpose. These parents are abusive. And when they're high on heroin, they're really kind-hearted, nice, and the world is happy. But when they're coming down from it, they're monsters. And you people, mean the state people, you can't remove the kids. They're in danger. So if I can help them get to sleep and save their lives, I'm going to do it. And he did. So it's, it's not a stretch, at least for me personally, it wasn't a stretch to think that an anesthesiologist could take something as, as simple as cough syrup or something and put a child to sleep, knowing her compact size, her language, knowing her body weight, um, not expecting any problems, not expecting her to wake up. They desperately needed quiet time, uh, according to their language. And so it was a very real thing for me. I believe them. I, I mean, I, I know that deception comes 90% uh, what people say is true. So only 10% is deceptive, and that's usually through withholding information. So sentence by sentence, there's so many things that McCann say that are true, and that's one of them. Um, Peter, I, uh, we're getting more questions on the chat. Uh, which I believe Delilah is monitoring. So let me sneak one in here that we received via email. And uh, it's rather lengthy. It says, I have a topic to be considered for the show, which is the McCain's use of private investigation companies. One in particular I would like to bring to your attention is a company called Alpha Investigations, which claimed to have expertise in missing children cases. It seems the company had two employees, retired police officers named David Edgar and Arthur Cowley. Investigations have shown the company was set up by a friend of the McCanns named Brian Kennedy. The McCanns' official spokesperson, Clarence Mitchell, called a world press conference to announce a strong lead in Barcelona where a woman reported to look like Victoria Beckham, was seen acting suspiciously in a harbor in Barcelona. Uh, so do you have any thoughts or comments on that situation about this private uh, investigators who apparently are uh, somehow connected to the McCanns? I do, and I have very strong feelings about this. Um, I don't know them in particular, but the pattern is, is similar throughout other cases. The St. Louis Police Department were very close, I believe, to getting a confession from Deborah Bradley about what happened to baby Lisa. One of those cases where a mother was uh, drinking, not intoxicated, but drinking, 
lost their temper and had an unintended death and cover-up. They were, I think, this close to a confession, and in came a $700-an-hour attorney from New York who uh, derailed justice, who gave the investigators and the FBI a very difficult time. He went on to hire experts to say this and say that. They actually went to a guy who taught deception for the CIA, and he went public with his statements, and his statements themselves showed deception. He didn't believe his own words. The Ramses did the same thing. They used their money to hire private investigators, and it wasn't really a private investigator. It was a PR team, and it shows a need for PR. Innocent parents do not give a rat's patootie what you think of them. They just want their daughter back. You can call them anything you want, but please help me get my daughter back. In fact, some of them will even welcome the brutal scrutiny because at least it brings media attention. What we have in the, with these experts is they will testify to anything. One of the things we learned at the Casey Anthony trial was um, what does grieving look like? When Casey Anthony's daughter went missing, she went out partying and dancing every night. They found an expert, or they paid an expert to get on the stand under oath before God and say, yes, it's, it's like ugly grieving. Some people will grieve this way. So no matter what the behavior is, someone, some expert will always be paid to give an opinion uh, that fits that narrative. John Douglas was a respected uh, analyst and, and profiler for the FBI for a number of years, and his books were quite enjoyable. They paid him to give a profile of John Bonet's killer, and they took his words and twisted it. And all that came out was that John Ramsey did not fit the profile of someone that would garrot or slowly torture his own daughter. That's not how she died. That's not how she died. And that's all he said, but his, his reputation was completely shot from there on out. So whenever you see families, and the Ramseys did it, and the Cans did it, um, Amanda Knox's family did it, they hire... PR firms, the Ramseys even had, they took polygraph after polygraph, failing all over the place. They finally found someone, the attorneys found someone who would ask such innocuous questions that he was able to pass them. Then they announced that they passed the polygraph, but they refused to give the polygrapher or the polygraphic examiner's name, and they refused to, to tell us what questions they were asked. So it becomes like a joke based on money. That is insulting. And this is what I was talking about earlier with the emotional reaction. Liars hold their audience in contempt. They presuppose their own supremacy over the audience. And we here in the United States did not see all the interviews the way the UK people did, watching interview after interview in which really the smugness begins to emerge of these two parents where they're defensive and they go through an entire interview, never talking about their daughter, but talking about themselves and their own feelings. Why don't they talk about their daughter? Are they sociopathic? No, the daughter is beyond help. And that's why they don't. So I don't, you know, you can pay an expert to get to say anything. Uh, and we saw uh, Philip Houston was the CIA one who was definitely it may not have been the smartest thing for my career to do that, but I was so aggravated by 
uh, Fox News and how they did that, that I analyzed Houston's words to show that he himself is deceptive. He doesn't believe his own words. So when an expert comes along and says something, you take it with a full grain of salt. What I did with the McCanns, and that's why I, I challenge listeners, I don't believe that that child was ever kidnapped. I believe that the child died in the apartment and they've been lying ever since. I give you my reasons why I believe that. This way, if I'm wrong, you can go to this point or that point and say, hey, this doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. But what happens is in the analysis, I go into the McCann case the way I go into every other case. We presuppose innocence. We presuppose truthfulness. It's not a moral exercise. It is a way of catching liars. You must believe everything they say. You must believe this child was kidnapped just the way they said it. Then, and it's like a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle was one of a, an old-fashioned wooden puzzle. And you put all the pieces together and you have a nice portrait. I'm not taking their pieces and sanding them to make it fit. If you want to make it fit, that they're being truthful, you have to cut and butcher those pieces so much so that by the time you put it together, it's the end of Dorian Gray. It is a grotesque, illogical mess that is aesthetically displeasing. People sense that when they watch television. They may not have training, but they are expecting someone to say, I don't know who Maddie's with, but I hope that they're giving her her special blankie. And please, if you're watching by tonight, please... Maddie needs this or Maddie needs that. And all they care about is what Maddie or Madeline is going through. When the UK audience saw interview after interview, and they never heard this stuff, it's inflammatory. It really gets under the people's skin. And I don't blame them for it. Well, Peter, is statement analysis admissible in court, or is it not like a polygraph? It's like the polygraph. It's not admissible in court. It's used in court incessantly. In other words, we all use statement analysis. If I say we went to the store, you're thinking that me and someone else at least went to the store. You're using statement analysis by listening. The question is not its use. Its use is inescapable. The question is, are we using it properly or not? Um, In a recent case, a prosecutor had statement analysis of the defendant's answers in front of him. And he used it as he went along to cause the defendant to choke on his own words until the defendant finally got angry and stopped speaking because he was caught in lie after lie. So it's used in in the courtroom, but it's not admissible as a separate science. Having said that, I submit reports to court and I testify under oath or a deposition using it or explaining, this is why I have come to my conclusion. I'm chuckling because I had a recent uh, cross by a, an attorney who kept after me. He was so shocked that I said, I believe what people tell me, that he couldn't get past it. It was very frustrating for him. But this was the truth. I went into the McCanns believing everything, and I'd never heard those things I needed to hear. And they overwhelmed me. They, they told me through the lens of analysis 
we are smugly lying and we're pulling the wool over the eyes of others because we're protecting ourselves and our other children. And there's your aggravation factor. But they have to overwhelm us to have a conclusion and analysis. It's, it's not like we put a microscope under a particular word and then run to a conclusion. It's the point to the place where you say no more. This is ridiculous. This person is not telling the truth. Okay, we have some more questions um, Yeah, from the chat room. Um, after looking through several statements since the interview with Richard, is there any language you've identified that hints at where or how the cadaver was occulted? I'm not sure exactly what occulted means, but maybe you know. Um, I, think it, I think it means some form of discernment. I'm not sure, though. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about the baby Lisa case where the attorney said, we have completely cooperated with police and we have completely allowed them to search the apartment, the house. And what we learn is that when the search dogs came, like the diver dogs came to the house of this missing baby, the attorney stopped them at the door and allowed them to only let the dog sniff at the frame of the door. So when they said we were completely cooperating and we completely allowed the house to be searched, the words completely were repeated and unnecessary. It means something is sensitive about it. Something is wrong. Well, when the police came out and said, yeah, they wouldn't let us in. They would only let us use the cadaver dogs in certain areas we see why they had a need to say completely. In um, especially Kate's language, there is this same type of affirmation of unnecessary information. Um, someone had asked me on Facebook to look at a recent video where she finally says, hey, Madeline's the real victim here, or something, something that affirming affirming that Madeline is the victim. To affirm that the kidnapped child is the victim is so utterly unnecessary, but becomes even more unnecessary when you talk about it coming from the biological mother that tells you there's something very wrong with that language. So I don't know about location, and I'll have to look further. I believe, and this is a, a wild assertion, if someone, myself, uh, my team, some of the other statement analysis analysts I know from around the country here in the United States, if any of us were given the transcripts of the original interviews that were done by police, the first interviews, I think we could tell them where the body was. I know it sounds rather stupendous, but picture this. If my analysis is correct, when they were interviewed, and they said, she said, we hid the body incredibly well. What's on their mind? What's on Kate's mind as she's speaking? Her brain is working overtime saying to her, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Don't say where the body is, don't say where the body is. Over and over and over, it is almost impossible to keep it out of the language. Um, I referenced this with the baby Ayla case where the father said, contrary to rumors floating around out there, Avalon Sapir 
uh, analyst from Arizona said, hey, that baby's in water. That's what enters the language if we're listening. So I think that if we had the transcripts, we would be able to tell them where that body was at that time. If the body was placed in water, and, and obviously the number of years has passed on, things have changed, but I'm, I believe that that's there. I can't prove it because I don't have the transcripts, but I believe it's there. Uh, Peter, I'd like to ask you a question of my own and then uh, an email question is, is to follow up. Um, my question is about the the police work. Um, now, maybe you saw statements that police made or something and, and the statement analysis, your expertise would come in from that standpoint. But if not, from what you know of the police investigation, uh, what is your impression of it? Was it an adequate investigation? Was it uh, were there things left uh, maybe to chance or that weren't done that should have been done? Uh, do you have an opinion on how the police uh, did their investigation of the disappearance? I do, and that's a great question, and I'm I'm glad to answer it. I whenever I work on a case, I never comment on it, and it's never on the blog. I. When people ask, sometimes I'll even ask the moderators to delete the comment because I don't want any association giving information out. Um, it's just not something that police can trust. So I don't have any inside information. In fact, I don't have any statements by police, but I have a very strong opinion about the police job that they do, the police stance. Where did it come from? From Kate McCann herself, the one I always talk about believing. Kate and Jerry McCann revealed to us via the lens of statement analysis that the initial investigators knew they had killed the child. Here's what happens. And it, it varies from country to country. It, it actually varies from, from locale to locale, but the word police becomes applied to anyone who is officially associated with the law, law enforcement investigation, including, including prosecutors. What I mean is the initial investigators who conducted the interview of the McCanns, according to the language of the McCanns, they were onto them. They knew. So then the question is begged, what happened to the investigation? You know, was there a cover-up? Was there... Well, the initial police are the – it's really interesting. They're the bottom of the ladder but they're the most valuable. They're the hardest working and the lowest paid. And those up the ladder are sometimes very politically involved. And you may get at any given time, like a case like this, businesses, especially in the tourism industry, that become quite upset. Then you have those superiors who might say, and this I don't know if it's true, but might say, if we can't prove this case, we don't want our guys looking bad. And so as you climb up the ladder away from the original investigators, it becomes a, a much cloudier picture. And outside influences, like politicians, local politicians, like even businesses, including that particular, um, the tourism industry, can become involved and really mess up an investigation. So I do not have a negative 
viewpoint of the original investigators, I actually have a very positive one based on the language of the McCanns, particularly Kate, and the disposition, the need to persuade that comes out of the language of the McCanns tells me they were frightened. They were suspects. They um, showed great distancing language between them and the police. Denny, I think the police were on to them. It became derailed for reasons I don't know, but I think police were on to them. That's a great question. Well, thank you, Peter. Now, uh, I'd like to follow that up with a question uh, we received by email from a lady named Jane, I believe, from the U.K. And uh, she says, Matthew Oldfield's statement, does the analysis show he is a crime attendant through the statement he made to Portugal police? Uh, I'm not sure what a crime attendant uh, means, but are you familiar with Mr. Oldfield and his statement? I'm not. I haven't gotten to the peripheral, um, what may be the attendants, those around the crime. I haven't gotten to their statements yet, but um, time willing, perhaps over the holiday vacation, I will be able to get to a little bit of it. So it would be interesting okay, to learn what the other families say about it. And if you uh, if you do have that opportunity, will that be something as as you do more analysis that you'll post on the blog so people can catch up with what uh, what you learned? Yes, I will. As a matter of fact, what had happened was um, the response to the initial analysis was a, it, the initial analysis was a later interview that was given by the McCanns. It was just a transcript that someone sent. And I analyzed, and there it was. But the analysis showed what is called an embedded confession. And this is something that those who are um, maybe early in training and analysis mostly get wrong. Those outside of training, they don't understand it. But even within training, it's, it's difficult to embrace. But an embedded analysis is where the brain is unable to suppress the truth. And it finds its way through the words. And most times people think that an embedded analysis is really someone um, parroting someone else's language. In the case of the McCanns, they actually went into detail. Very similar to uh, one of the athletes over here, Roger Clemens, who was, um, he testified before Congress on his steroid use. And he had said, um, similar to what the McCanns do, he asked questions. And when someone is testifying or giving an answer to what happened, they should not be asking questions. He said, um, Roger said, if I have all these performance-enhancing drugs, it would mean that someone supplied them. Who supplied me? I wish he would come forward. And within a week or so, the supplier came forward. What Roger was doing was he was testing the waters to see how much people knew and see what would float, what would not float. This is exactly what Kate does more than Jerry, is she wants to see what, what are people onto, what, what sounds plausible. And so what he did was he literally embedded within his own words. He wasn't quoting someone else. He wasn't even quoting a journalist or a police officer or a senator. He was speaking in the free editing process for himself and embedded within his own words is, I have all these performance-enhancing drugs, and somebody supplied them. He was truthful. The McCanns told us she died in the apartment, she fell, 
and we hit her body incredibly well. They did not quote someone else. There was no one person that they could enter, not so much enter someone's language, but reflected or carried it or even used it. It was their own language. And when I saw that, and I looked very carefully, where is this coming from? Because if it comes from any source, not the notion, but the words, it's not an embedded confession. They confessed. Zenny, uh, this sounds crazy, but it's true. As many as um, estimated to be up to 80% of case files of unsolved crimes have embedded confessions, particularly by pronoun. What I mean by that is someone will say something like, well, like OJ said, you believe in my guilt. From the time we are little children, we take ownership of things that we want, and we do not take ownership of things we do not want. And using the word, the phrase my guilt is a strong indication that the person is telling the truth. They have guilt. Another will say, uh, I had no knowledge of my victim. That's an embedded confession by pronoun. And that's, that's the estimate that in the United States, in closed or cold case files, up to 80% of them contain a, a confession, an embedded confession, most of those by pronoun. So when the McCanns offered this to us, I believe them. I take them at their word. Great, uh, great comments. And um, when you mention that and about OJ, of course, that brings back a lot of memories uh, for me from that case. Uh, I, I appreciate that. That uh, always something I I think about. Um, uh, Delilah. Demi, excuse me a second, if I could. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is something really interesting for people in general to consider. Is when we ask you what happened, and I ask the listeners to consider it now. Um, tell me what happened this morning. In the United Kingdom, it's almost 9 p.m. And it's only a few hours ago that was morning. Something did happen to them this morning. When they go into their memory to tell me what happened, there's a thousand and one things to choose from. They don't have to hide their shoes. I doubt they went to work without shoes on. And if they went to work with shoes on, they don't need to tell me they tied it in a certain bow. But they did. In other words, there's 10,000 and one things that they're not going to tell me. So when I say to them, tell me what happened to you this morning, or tell me what you did this morning, they're only going to tell me things that are important to them. And this is just a very basic understanding of human nature. The average person will have 25,000 words, say, and, and the listeners are probably going to have a greater vocabulary. They're, they're intelligent thinking people. They want to know the truth. They're putting aside emotion to listen to logic. So they need 30,000 words. Out of those 30,000 words, when I say to them, what happened this morning? What did you do this morning? They will go into that dictionary. They'll pull out which words to use, which verb tenses to use, which pronouns to use, what order to give the information in, generally chronological, 
and where to place each word next to each other so as to make sense for communication. All of this will take place in the brain in less than a microsecond of time or a millisecond of time. Therefore, what they tell me is important. If someone felt the need to say, I stood over, I put on my shoes, and I tied the bow, I would say, wow, that's really weird. You know, like, why do you need to tell me about your shoes? And sure enough, something will happen where uh, involving shoes and the story will evolve. It will show why it's important to them, but it is. When the McCanns were talking about their last night with Madeline, they could say anything, anything. Kate chose to tell me about putting something in Madeline's mouth. It was really important to her. Not 10 years later, but while speaking about her child kidnapped with someone else. She goes to, you know, ingestation, something going in the mouth. Yet, she never mentioned anything about concern about Madeline being fed or fed properly while kidnapped. This means the context is so important. It's the worst time of life, and she can remember anything, tell us anything, and leave out 10,000 other things. And she went to that. And she's an anesthesiologist. It's what's important to the person that we listen to them. Does that prove that she's sedated her child? It does not. It's just a very small piece of an overall puzzle. When the analysis is complete, when we presuppose innocence, they have literally talked us out of it. The analysis now has a conclusion. About the child, the person is lying. Now, the analysis is complete. We start again. We go back into the same statement, the same interview, with a new presupposition. We presuppose guilt. And this is called content analysis. This now tells us we're thinking of everything from the point of their guilt. Just as the first time we thought of everything from the point of innocence, and they talked us out of it, and the puzzle became a disaster. Now we have a new puzzle, and it fits perfectly with the guilt story. We want to find out what happened. And now we go through it again, listen to those same details, but with a different mindset. And now we're able to say, well, why? Why is it so important that you tell me that you gave her, and I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but cookies, biscuits, and, and then something nondescript? Perhaps she was thinking about exactly what she did and the normal pattern that they created in putting the child to sleep where it hadn't failed too much before that. Again, their words. So I think that not only were they, did Madeline die, part of the cause being a sedation, um, a child that wakes up in the middle of the night or, or after sleeping for a short period of time is at age three, four, is going to be groggy anyway. But under sedation, wow, that could be a very serious fall. And she could whack her head on anything and be done. Um, what I'm also wondering as I look into this and I look into it more is did they find a deceased Madeline or did she breathe her last while Kate was holding her? Something that I'll look into a little more deeply. 
Well, one of the one of the chat chatters has uh, copied and pasted some statements right out of Kate's book that are just really alarming. I think. Um, for instance, I asked Jerry apprehensively if he'd had any really horrible thoughts or visions of Madeline. He nodded. Haltingly, I told him about the awful pictures that scrolled through my head of her body, her perfect little genitals torn apart. I was crying out that I could see Madeline lying, cold and mottled on a great, big gray stone slab. And, I mean, what kind of descriptions... Are these that a mother would give? I mean, yeah, you have visions of horrible things. I'm, I'm sure, but this is so vivid. Yes, it, it is. And um, in the analysis, I indicate the element of sexual abuse in the language. Now, that's very vague, and what I mean by that, it's deliberately vague until we know more. It means that Madeline A could have been a victim of sexual abuse. B, and it could be A and B, B, um, Pat McCann was a victim of childhood sexual abuse growing up and has struggled and failed to protect. Um, C, both. D, within the uh, jury's language. In other words, it must be explored for. It's in the language. There's an element there. And one of the expressions they use, and um, Richard had pointed this out because um, when he and Heather were speaking about it, you could see their, just their faces. Um, when a child is sexually abused, and this is a little bit difficult for the audience to embrace, but they're here for a reason, guilt will cause a parent to even subtly blame the child. The descriptions from that book have to do with genitalia. That's really off. I mean, that, that's it's telling you what's in her mind as she does this. And there's also the emotional element of the editing process that they're using there as well. They're, it's called artificial placement. But a mother who is sexually abused in childhood is going to be affected by it uh, in severe ways, including the suppression of our immune system, um, her own parenting techniques. Most women who are abused in childhood grow up to become almost hypervigilant and very protective mothers. They're on their alert constantly for potential child, child abuse for their own child. Some of them fail to recognize the signs or yield to it because they think there's a norm to it. When it happens, we often find in the language Parents trying to blame a child. I talk about a time where I was interviewing a child molester with a uh, young female social worker, and he asked me if I knew what that look or that walk was like from the three- or four-year-old child. And the social worker got up. She, she was going to vomit and burst into tears. She had to leave the room. She knew that she had been... Uh, risking derailing the interview but this guy was so zoned all I said was yes continue and I kept the poker face because I want the information not only that is because if I show um, moral disturbance and that child remains in his home because of a lack of proof I don't know that he's 
going to go home and take out his anger on that child. So there has to be that personal from these things. Well, they find a way to blame the child, the child's walk, the child's talk, and some children actually have sexualized behavior mimicking what they've been through. In the McCann case, uh, Kate, not Pat, sorry, Kate, openly opines that we don't know who she was with. And when you think about the structure of that sentence and you think about a biological mother saying that, that is the language of sexual abuse. They, uh, Madeline would not choose who she's with. What is expected is who had my daughter, who has my daughter present tense, not who she's with, putting emphasis upon Madeline. When um, this was I don't mean this to sound politically correct. I, I, I'm concerned that it does, but it's just the truth. Sexual abuse is not um, singled out in any socioeconomic level. It really is across the board. Wealthy people do molest their children. Um, impoverished people molest their children. Um, people in rural communities sometimes feel they get away with it more than, than non-rural communities, but it, it really is across the board. When there is a subtle blaming of a child, we look for that shift of guilt of human nature trying to push it off. And and you look at the case of John Benet Ramsey, you say, well, there was a sexualized environment where this little girl was shaking her rear end and wearing a mini skirt like a Las Vegas showgirl. Now, yes, culture has shifted quite a bit since then, and we have quite a lot more vile language and music and everything else. But back then, that was a shocking image on television to see a little girl shaking her behind that way. It's something that I saw on television as I watched with my own six-year-old daughter. It was disturbing. Now, this is from someone who has investigated for years child sexual abuse. Next, I'm told that she had a history of bedwetting. Now, bedwetting by itself doesn't necessarily conclude child sexual abuse, but children that are sexually abused wet their beds constantly, and they end up getting abused more for it. I've dealt with that. So I have a sexualized child in terms of clothing and mannerism, and now I have bedwetting. Then I have a doctor reporting multiple urinary tract infections of John Binet. Strike one, strike two, strike three. And a doctor didn't report. He said he had no concerns of sexual abuse. They generally don't when it comes to wealth. They miss that. And I dealt with that before. Where they're always surprised that so-and-so, who seemed to be a pillar of the community, was sexually abusing his own child. Then you have the language the language where, for instance, they refer to themselves as a child. You know, we don't call them kid molesters, or, or, or we call it child molestation and child molesters and child abuse. And it comes into their language, and if it's there and it's true, 80% likely it's going to be sexual abuse. So in the McCann's language, we have not only a lack of concern for Madeline's current status, but we have subtle indicators of the possible possibility of sexual abuse. And I think that that's what caught people's attention, and they may not have understood why, but that's what made them think, hey, was she sold into a child sex ring? 
Because that, as creepy as it sounds, it does exist. It's real. Looking at that statement with the mother, that's it's just gross. It's just disgusting. It really to, is. To know that. And that's in um, going to toiletry. If your little girl was missing and she was kidnapped and you're talking about the last night, would you talk about toiletry? Um, we talk about personal hygiene and statements. And um, it's sometimes uh, people reading it or reading it on a blog or they think it's like a Facebook psychic. There's no such thing. Psychics are liars. They have so many issues psychologically. They need to be important. Um, this is a science that is taught by any reasonable person who applies themselves in hard work can detect deception. When we see this type of things in language, um, I was on a theft case where someone said that I, I woke up, my alarm went off, I brushed my teeth, I got dressed, I went to work. The fact that she could tell me any number of 100,000 things but chose to tell me about personal hygiene told me that she is likely concealing information of a personal nature that is very much associated with domestic violence. And when I went to the owner of the company, I said, you know, I'm concerned about this employee and theft. I think she might be in a domestically violent relationship. And the owner was shocked as if I was some kind of crazy psychic saying, how did you know that? We've been trying to get her out of the relationship. He's a bad guy. It ended up that she wasn't involved with that theft. She was involved with another theft where her boyfriend bullied her into getting a key to the building because she was uh, under violence, under threat of violence. It's not that way. I don't believe that she brushed her teeth. I do believe it. Her need to tell me of while she was getting ready to go to work, she went into the bathroom. She very likely locked the door. And for a very few short minutes, she felt safe. She felt in control. It was that important to her that it was related to theft. When the McCanns are talking, especially Kate, talking about that last day with the child, last night with the child, and she goes to hygiene, it tells us she's concealing information of a personal nature. And in a case like that with a child, it very only be sexual abuse. So, you know, I have an opinion on this. I, I, my opinion tells me that Madeline was a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Dad may have been the perpetrator, and Mom turned a blind eye. Or was it just failure to stop it? It's possible that she contributed to it. I interviewed a, um, a medical professional who had sexually abused her own son. I said, well, you know, how, do, how is it that women abuse children sexually? For the most part, the male will abuse the child sexually for orgasm, for the momentary, very short pleasure, besides the delight in destroying innocence, this new rush uh, of, from desensitization. Whereas most females that commit these type of acts somehow are trying to ingratiate the child. They, they do less physical, um, less physical pain is inflicted by a female generally. They're trying to please someone else, whether it be a boyfriend or literally the child. I, I mean, I had a, um, a medical professional say to me, he likes it. The infant likes it. 
she herself had been molested. She could not see. I mean, a brilliant medical professional could not see the damage that she was doing. Could not even see it as wrong. And people would be shocked if they, if they sort of the average pedophile does not have beady eyes hiding behind a corner with a camera. I mean, that, that can be true, of course. But it happens in families like this, in educated families that, that like the McCanns and like the Ramseys, like others. It happens. So that they went to this language, that they went to the language in the book, yeah, it's really concerning. Well, to switch gears a little bit, Peter, um, one of the questions from the chat room, has Peter actually seen some of the interviews, or does he solely rely on written statements in that in that does do you use body language in conjunction with statement analysis to come to an opinion on the case, such as the observations of Kate McCann in particular, um, portray her as being cold and distant and show some classic mannerisms of deception attempts? Yeah, do you go into any of the body language or do you just strictly go by statement? The studies in the body language show it's just ultimately a failure. It, it, People that say that they can discern deception by body language, basically, I think it's somewhere around 53%, which is just about the same as guesswork. What we do is we, um, the person themselves is utterly non-existent to us. They do not exist. We only want the words that they've chosen in less than a microsecond. So we don't have voice inflection and someone will say, well, hey, you're missing sarcasm. Well, we're not, we're not analyzing for sarcasm. We're looking to see what word is chosen, even if it's meant humorously. In humor, we get truth. So we do not analyze the voice inflection. We do not analyze the body language. I grew up with seven sisters. I can see a movie and blow my eyes out easily. Uh, when someone cries, people say, oh, I can tell those are fake tears. They really can't. That's, that's like um, that's like the Facebook psychic, and later on, always in hindsight, um, Bob's... B-O-B-S Watson. People can Google Bob's Watson. He was called the crybaby of Hollywood in the 30s. This kid could make himself cry over anything, and you want to cry with him. It's amazing. And I've known people that could show me, watch me cry. They can think of something really sad and pull out real tears. So when someone is lying, and um, it, it makes great headlines. Look at those crocodile tears. They're likely not crocodile tears. They might be crying because they don't want to get caught. They might be crying over something else, but people can't discern that. Now, having said that, all of us use body language. All of us do. And uh, I think there's some benefit to, after the fact, looking back at something and, and learning more. But the, the biggest of all the body language today is the micro-expression training, and it's probably the biggest fraud out there. It, it, it's no different than guesswork. The founder, Paul Ekman, Dr. Ekman, had some fantastic research where they looked at uh, videos and they slowed the videos down and looked at the micro-expression of someone, um, which was quite revelatory, and he studied it cross-culture. He said, uh, after the Hollywood show came out, he said he was selling training across the, the world, and people signed up like crazy, and everyone was doing micro-expression training. And then he announced that he would never declare someone to be deceptive unless he conducts the interview himself. Not even if you send him the videotape where he can do close-up on the face and do stop and look at the micro-expression. 
In other words, it's never going to happen that he's going to fly anywhere and do a single interview to prove the system works. And he's saying, we have no faith in the system anywhere in the country. What I'm saying is if you have reasonable intelligence, if you do not have unresolved severe psychological issues, and you work really hard, you can learn this. You can be an expert at this because it's like math. You must memorize. You must apply. You must work really diligently. Um, if you have, you know, various narratives or psychological issues going on, and, and this this case certainly brought that out, um, you can't do this work. If you don't, if you have trouble where you believe what politicians or mainstream media tells you without thinking, or if you can remove critical thinking and, and be governed by your emotions, you can't do this work. It's not that there's something wrong with you. It's just that this isn't for you. People that think everyone is lying fail at this stuff really badly. People that are gullible as heck, people that just think everyone's telling the truth, they do really well in training. They respond really well. But if you can look at a horse and say, no, that's a cow, I know, I feel in my heart that's a cow. You can't do this. It's, um, you can't dislodge logic to it. So some people look at Kate and Jerry McCann and they feel certain emotions and all reason is gone. About the jigsaw puzzle and the reaction, when someone has concluded that Jerry and Kate McCann are telling the truth and the daughter was kidnapped, in the defense of the McCanns, Delilah, they literally say the things the McCanns refuse to say. And it gets even weirder. People dedicate their lives to someone like the McCanns, whom they'll never meet, they'll never get a dollar from, they'll never get thanks from, and they'll never have any connection to. Yet they devote their lives to disproving the obvious. So if you have bought into this modern identification movement, you can't do this work. If you don't think a male is different from a female, how could you ever analyze a threat? Well, I think there might be a, a black male age 60. No, it might be a black male age 60 who thinks he's a white female age 20. No, I think it's definitely a white male age 60. In other words, you couldn't help the person under threat because you'd be afraid to identify whether you hear a male voice or a female voice because that presupposes men and women think differently, and that goes against what the politicians have just told you for the last eight years. So I'd like to say that really anybody of intelligence can do this, but if they are narrative-driven, if they're emotional-driven, um, they can't. They're going to fail, and, and it's just a, a really – embittered waste of time. Um, there have been people that have responded with some really great questions. One of them was this. This was a, a great question. Peter, don't you think the McCanns are being defensive because so much time has passed that they've been accused by the public and they're responding to it? Now, that was a great question, and I had two points for them. Number one was, yes, we did factor that in, the other analysts, in our analysis, we did look at that, and we reduced the level of sensitivity in the defensive posture because of that. Number two, even better, 
I went back and analyzed the statements or interview that was made right after she went missing, and it was the same thing. That person that posed the question wasn't, it was a good, healthy, scientific scrutinizing question or challenge. I love that stuff. Then there's someone else that took to writing all over Facebook, stop the hate, stop the hate, stop the hate, as if compulsively writing this, someone's going to go, I need to really stop and think why I have hatred towards the McCanns and, and change my opinion. <laughs> it's a complete disassociation with logic. Um, one psychology student actually called the police here in the United States. He's studying statement analysis or discourse analysis or whatever he calls it, and he had a question whether a detective actually gave a recommendation for training or that was some kind of lie. And what he did was he packaged it in a passive-aggressive insult. So we followed up to find out to make sure this guy doesn't pose a threat, but, and that's done. But think about what that's going to mean later on. What if he becomes a therapist? And that's, that's kind of some scary stuff out there. So when people have an emotional reaction to a case like this, it's healthy for all of us to step back and say, why? Why am I reacting this way? I find that my record would not be where it is today if I listened to my emotions, if I listened to what I saw in body language, especially in tears. I was on the edge of, of aloneness with a rape victim. Everyone had concluded the rape took place, and this kid was going to jail. I mean, everybody. And I stood alone, and I stood on a pronoun, because I couldn't take her tears. It just was tearing me up. She was just such a, uh, a moving creature. It just blew me away like that. Well, she was lying. And when confronted with the lie and the fact that she was going to put some young man in jail, she said, yeah, I knew that. He had it coming. That sort of reaction. Just complete dismissive. I would challenge anyone to sit in a room with this young female and be able to hold themselves together because she was just that terrific. She fooled her doctor. She fooled other investigators. And if I had not had training, the, kid would have been in, the other kid would have been in jail. So Delilah, no, I, I can't put that type of stock. I would never base my career on someone's nose twitching saying, there it is, only to later on find out that they didn't have their allergy medicine or something. <laughs> uh, Peter, I, uh, we're starting, we're down to our last 15 minutes here. I have a, an additional email question I'd like to ask, and I'll turn it over to Delilah to see if she has any uh, anything else in the chat room or any uh, personal questions or comments. Um, this uh, email is from Shirley Sweeney, and she is a parent in the UK. I would really like to know why the McCanns or any of their party have not been ordered to take lie detector tests or Kate McCann to reply uh, no comment to her 48 questions, and this has never been challenged. The lack of challenging is not yeah, the lack of challenging is not from police, it's not from Scotland Yard on the ground. In other words, the bottom of the ladder, the real go to guys, investigators. It comes from above. I don't think it's compulsory that anyone can um, be coerced into taking a polygraph. One of the things that uh, John 
Walsh urges parents of missing children to do is take a polygraph immediately. Um, when parents refuse to take a polygraph, parents have a reason not to take a polygraph. It's not scary. You're, you're told the five questions or the six questions you're going to be asked ahead of time. Is today Tuesday? Am I Santa Claus? Did you cause your child's death? Are you being truthful? Just, you know, they know ahead of time the very simple questions, including the, um, the baseline questions. When someone refuses to take a polygraph, they have a reason to refuse. And that's, that's the mechanics. And that's aggravating to, I think, what the, the question may also be about is, why is not uh, any journalist holding them to account? That's frustrating. Well, I think, you know, again, Peter, there's, there seems to be so many similarities to the Ramsey case in, in the speculation that we've all had over the years when, when that case happened as well. And I know you've done some an, uh, some analysis on statements within that case, too. Um, is, is it really – is it maybe more similar – these two cases than we really know or we really think? I think it is because I think that it helps us to understand the anger of people in the United Kingdom and helps them to understand why we felt such anger towards the Ramses. Because both families are outrageous with their posturing, with their publicity machines, um, even with trying to cash in on things. So I think, I think both people's and looking at thinking people, critically thinking people, who may even feel very sorry for the McCanns or the Ramses, who may feel sympathetic on a lot of levels, but know, hey, the language tells us differently. They're not truthful. I think it's, it's very helpful for both people to kind of look at it that way. Well, we have just a couple more questions as we're winding down to the end of our our broadcast um, from the chat room. Is there anything in the language of the McCanns that's given you an idea of where her body may have been disposed? No, not yet. That's that's what I was saying about the original transcripts. I'm, I'm going to be looking further because I haven't seen a lot of statements yet. But what I did was was just the interviews to find out if they all affirm the original analysis. And across the board, month by month, year by year, the concern and priority is the McCanns themselves, not Madeline. Madeline, no concern. Madeline deceased. The inability to say she was kidnapped. It's all consistent. So not yet. Okay. And, and one more. Do you think it's significant that Kate never attributes the last time that she saw Maddie? She said she couldn't remember who checked before they left, but thinks it was Jerry. Now, I concluded that is deceptive for a good reason, two reasons. Number one is that the, when a child goes missing, we as parents have an inflammation of hormones, a rush of hormones, a fight or flight, and it gives us great clarity of mind, of vision. The people that claim trauma are often those that have reason to not want to remember things. So that's number one. Number two is Kate herself affirmed that. She talked about how sharp her memory was because of what happened. When a child goes missing, a parent relives every moment without sleep. And they often have a pattern of calling police in the middle of the night saying, I just remembered this or I just remembered that. They're never done with the information. As long as the child is missing, they're never done. They relive it over and over and over. So 
um, Kate is not telling the truth there. Well, that's quite interesting, and this has been, a, you know, a really special broadcast. I think that you've you've been able to impart so much good information about this case and other cases. Um, Peter, would you give out your contact information so that people know where to find you online, or if they would like to get a hold of you for um, analysis training? Yeah, um, in fact, in Facebook. I have had some comments that have been remarkable. Uh, it's interesting. The comments that were anti, I did not find a single one that gave a reason. And the comments that were pro the analysis, you know, were gratitude. The emotional was there, the gratitude. But the commenting part of it was always astute and logical. And so a number of people have signed up for training already, and um, I've seen some real talent out there, which is exciting. The best way to go about that is to go to the Hyatt Analysis Duck and see what we offer. The, the training is done at your home, and it's um, similar at parts, actually the same as seminars, where you, but you don't get a chance to ask the questions on the fly with a group, but the course is designed to, to last you at least six months. And it really does take time to absorb and learn. There are some, some cheaper courses out there that are very short and um, quite elementary. But generally speaking, if someone gets into that, they're going to be hungry for more and, and want to go deeper anyway. But the commenting has been impressive. So HyattAnalysis.com, if you'd like to be, receive training, whether it's uh, investigator, business, um, human resources, journalists, I would like to see more journalists in training. A couple of them are, are signed up and a couple have taken training. Some lawyers have too, but the journalist is needed today. It's desperate. Peter, in the few minutes we have left, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, uh, well, two things. <clears throat> you mentioned the media. And, uh, is, is there uh, to your knowledge, any specific newspaper or reporter or TV station that's on to this case and really doggedly? No, I, I have found that mainstream media in particular has been almost disastrous. Every so often there'll be an editorial where somewhere there's a little bit of common sense in it, but it's almost like, um, and this is what happens in media. They get a, a trend and they're afraid to break the trend. They get an agenda, and they're afraid to break the agenda. And I think politically, it's, it's to the point where they know they're not going to have access here in America to the White House if they don't agree, and so they do not ask difficult questions. I mean, we had today any, um, the ambassador to Turkey from Russia that was assassinated. We had an editorial in a New York newspaper that was one of the most vile ones I've ever read. He, he said that does not shed a tear for the ambassador who was slain in the Ali Akbar in Turkey because of what the Russians did to our election. And it, it's absurd. It's absurd. So I think that there is a dearth of critical thinking today in general. And um, this is why the response to uh, Richard's video has been so overwhelming is because people heard logic. 
if this guy Hyatt is wrong, we can see where he'll be wrong and we can fix it. But we see it as logical. We see it as making sense. And so it's not based on my feelings as a parent or a grandparent or feeling empathy for someone. The Santa Claus that you mentioned earlier, um, I didn't read his story. I had no emotional connection to it because I only analyzed it. And when people said, oh, it made them cry, some people said, I'm glad he was telling the truth. Um, I decided to go back and read it. And yeah, it was a touching story, but I didn't read it to begin with. I only analyzed it and you know, there, there it was, the truth. So I, I appreciate the, oh, oh. the critical thinking. Well, you know, I I hesitate to give away my age, but I can remember back <laughs> years ago when when you had investigative journalists, <clears throat> and I mean these people uh, scared the people, the corrupt people, the bad guys, as much as the police digging into them because these guys were were uh, nose to the grindstone and uh, didn't leave a, a stone unturned and they dug for the truth. And, uh, and like I say, they, they helped in conjunction, of course, with good police work, obviously that's uh, got to be going on too. But these, um, some of these journalists were very sharp and, and uh, they could help to bring uh conclusion to some of these crimes and some of these stories and I just don't see that anymore today. Um, you know, what, it was, what today it was they're being called. Yeah, and I think that's all changed. And I, I think that's to the detriment of justice, society. I, I, uh, I think we've all taken a hit in, in various ways by the, uh, by the so-called mainstream media and being more... Um, interested in pushing a political agenda or something than they are in uh, in actually getting good, solid news stories. Yeah. Just for the readers, uh, listeners' interest, police investigators, the guys, the professionals, the men and women on the ground, they read your comments. They scan chat rooms. They, as far as I know, they're smart enough to know that people are way smarter than they are. And people have great ideas. And we need that. We need a, a team of bloggers to get out and tell the truth and critically think at a time where where someone, a young person, age 21, male, runs to pet a puppy because someone disagreed with them in his safe space. Huh. So critical yeah. thinking uh, uh, is, is desperately needed today. Uh, Delilah, we're down to our last three minutes. Do you have any uh, final uh, late questions that came in from chat or any final comments? Yeah, I, I think we have one more. Peter can kind of run through it pretty quick. Um, did Kate McCann really want to be a mother, as she claims, for someone that has tried for years to have kids? She doesn't seem to show any attachment to them, which is very strange. Now, commenting on the the video appearances that I have seen, and this is after the analysis, so I don't let it guide my analysis, but afterwards, yes, she does appear cold, indifferent, uncaring. Two reasons for that. Number one, um, when a parent loses a child, the parent, the one thing that, that is comforting, and even the comfort can make guilt feel, is that they don't have to worry about the child ever again. 
they all somehow express that one way or another, even if it makes them feel guilty. That's a strong indication the child is dead. The other thing is, is that they, in her mind, she may find to defend herself so much and has taken all things to heart because in her mind, I didn't mean this to happen. I didn't intend this. So I, I don't see the, um, even the distancing language may be due to death and the defensive posture. But I do think that she wanted children, and um, as she told me she did. And I think that part of this is saving their jobs, their professions, their lives, but also not losing custody of twins. People in law enforcement, they know. They know. They feel frustrated. They feel aggravated. They have to listen to what politicians say also. They know, though. They know what you know, the obvious lies. You know that, Danny. Yes. You know, how, how even during investigations, you you had to deal with your own emotions on these things, but you knew. Yes. Uh, brings back some memories. Uh, well, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, Peter, I can't thank you enough for being with us today and sharing your expertise of statement analysis and how it applies to the McCann case. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I'm looking forward to, to you doing more of your analysis and doing follow-up posts on your site, So, um, because I'm very interested in what, what shakes out in your mind as you have a chance to do more. Um, I also want to thank our listeners and for their uh, questions from the chat room. Uh, they were very good questions, and hopefully we got to all or at least most of uh, of those people and our uh, people who sent in by email. We appreciate that as well. So thanks again to everyone, Peter and the listeners, and until next time, stay safe, and we'll catch you back again on CrimeWire. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.